what I'm always struck by, and I think that probably that's where one gets one's energy from and, and stamina from and resilience from, are people that have been violated in the most vile manners. And they have no reason to have faith in anything. And yet they will still have this remarkable conviction that despite the bleakness of their experience, justice can bring in the light of dawn. Welcome to The Mediator's Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper, and I'm coming to you from a very special edition of the Oslo Forum. Having started out as a small gathering in 2003, the Forum is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. Participants from around the world have come to discuss how to resolve the major conflicts of our day. Yemen, Sudan, Afghanistan, the war in Ukraine. Our theme today is justice in times of war. And my guest is the prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. Kareem Khan, welcome to the Mediator Studio. Good morning, Adam. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to give our listeners a sense of who you are, your values, your motivations. One of the biggest influences on your early life was Pakistan's first foreign minister, Sir Mohammad Zafarullah Khan, a towering diplomatic and legal figure who became president of the International Court of Justice, the ICJ. Tell me about his influence on you. He was a giant. I knew him as a, from my childhood. And what I remember is somebody extremely kind, a very religious person. He translated the Holy Quran from Arabic into English, he wrote a lot about human rights. In fact, his book, Islam and Human Rights, took the um, Universal Declaration of Human Rights article by article. And uh, I just saw somebody that I looked up to that was very loving to me, extremely kind. And this is why, really, I think the influence, I decided to go to King's College London for my first degree, because he did. I joined Lincoln's Inn because that's where he was a bencher. <laughs> he had a very big effect on me and my, my whole family, in fact, and he was really, you know, like an adopted grandfather. You said in the past that seeing the horrors of the Balkans War on television made you aspire to work at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. How pivotal was that for you? I mean, I'm a member of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, so mm. it's a persecuted community. And I did a lot of human rights work because uh, it was a criminal offence. It remains a criminal offence in Pakistan to call oneself a Muslim, if you're a member of the Ahmadiyya community, or to pose in any way as a Muslim. And um, we also did a lot of work for refugees. And uh, during those uh, years, a lot of refugees were coming from the Balkans. You see individuals that have nothing, that often are have the shadow of trauma on their faces and having an interest in human rights and seeing that the Yugoslav Tribunal had been established. And being a lawyer at that time, I thought, well, it'd be wonderful to be a part of it. And I kept knocking on the door mm. of the Yugoslav Tribunal <laughs> and by some lottery of luck, yeah, they managed to accept me and I was the first member of the English bar. I somehow managed to get a position and uh, I grasped it with two hands. Let's move forward to your work leading the ICC and Ukraine specifically. On 17th of March this year, you issued an arrest warrant for President Putin and his Child Rights Commissioner, Maria Alexeyevna Lvova-Belova. To give our listeners a sense of how you reached that point, take us back to last year, specifically 28th of February 2022, when you announced that you intended to open an investigation into the situation in Ukraine. I met for the first time the then Prosecutor General of Ukraine in uh, the end of 2021. And Ukraine had made a declaration accepting the jurisdiction of the court in 2014 and 2015. 
And I told her at that time I didn't have the resources and I wasn't going to proceed. And that in any event, Ukraine should pass implementing legislation to cooperate with the court. Otherwise, in my words, I said, I can't allow the office to be set up for failure, that you start something when the framework of cooperation is not enacted. But the events of the 24th of February, of course, changed all that. And uh, the kind of reports that were coming in very fast uh, compelled a reassessment. And I think uh, what I did, because of the gravity of the situation, because of the rhetoric and um, the nature of the information we were receiving, I invited state parties to accelerate our jurisdiction by referring the matter to us. And within 48 hours, 39 countries had referred the matter, and today we have 43 states from Latin America, from Asia, Japan, and, and really all of the European Union, Canada, New Zealand, and others, uh, that referred the matter. And we've tried to use it as a, a model for other situations by showing that the law does not need to be docile or pedestrian, mm. but it can work with purpose and with focus to make a difference when the bullets are flying and when people are really living with uncertainty about what tomorrow will bring. Because this is really unprecedented in the history of the ICC. There must have been a huge diplomatic effort involved as well. You know, some member states have said that you've opened up a new era of ICC activism. Tell me about what this action says about your broader vision for the court. Well, the first is I'm not an activist. I think sometimes the ICC was viewed as uh, the legal wing of the NGO community, or it was viewed as a puppet of states or the NGOs or civil society. For us to succeed, we have to be seen to be and act independently and objectively. But at the same time, you're quite right, there's no conflict between action and objectivity. And in mm. fact, we need more action because people around the world don't have confidence in international institutions. There's an erosion of trust, whether it's United Nations or African Union, the European Union, the International Criminal Court, states or the Security Council. People that suffer the most, refugees with their plastic bags crossing international borders, think we're all talk. Mm. And we're so disconnected from their lived realities that it is eroding the very institutions that have been anchors for peace or at least stability since the Second World War. And I think we have to find ways to deliver justice to make it being felt on the front lines when it's needed most. We can't be simply be seen as some kind of institution looking backwards that is doing research or a jurisprudence factory that is interesting for people to, you know, for lawyers to comment on and look at modes of liability, but actually is so divorced from people being raped or killed or hospitals being targeted. I don't think many of our listeners will know what it means in practical terms to investigate war crimes. Without revealing too much as operationally sensitive, can you give us a sense of what this actually looks like, say on the ground in Ukraine, and also through the use of technology? The obligation of prosecutor is different in the ICC than it is in a domestic system, for example, in England and Wales. There's an affirmative obligation in the statute to investigate incriminating and exonerating evidence equally. And we're living in an age, as you know, of so much information that can easily flood an office. But at the same time, within that, there may be fabricated evidence, there may be politically motivated evidence, and then there's the small matter of the truth that we need to find, distill and present to judges if there's a case. So there's a whole variety, you know, both trying to get hold of the most vulnerable individuals, make sure that their psychological state is protected, that we don't re-traumatize, that we do our due diligence to corroborate accounts. But we see increasingly technology being available. 
And it goes to one of my new initiatives is really to focus much more on building partnerships. Before we were knocking on the door, or we had a begging bowl, in fact, to states for information, it may be intelligence, it may be satellite. Because of partnerships, because of the evolving, maturing technological approaches in the private sector, partnerships with satellite companies so we can task satellites, we can use new e-discovery means that we can ingest far greater quantities of data from social media, from publicly available information, and actually witness statements to analyze it using artificial intelligence. Uh, we can use transcription services, mm -hmm. voice-to-text, and then automated translation. So we can try to do more with the very limited budget we've got and work smarter. So we're recording this at the Oslo Forum, which is a gathering of people focused on peace rather than justice. There's an active discussion about the ways in which those two goals are complementary. But sometimes, if we're honest, also in tension with each other. So let me be a bit provocative and ask you something. Do arrest warrants not make negotiations more difficult? And I might anticipate that you would say that you have a legal mandate and you're responsible for executing it, come what may. But I would appreciate your reflections on the diplomatic consequences of your legal action. I would put it rather differently. Always seeking to apply the law independently and objectively in often highly polarized and politically charged environments. We work and we orbit in a constellation of competing, very often inconsistent political objectives and a fragmented international landscape. And sometimes the issuance of a warrant may be welcome to, say, a victim community, and of course, very seldom will it be welcome to the person that is subject to that warrant. And I should clarify as well, I didn't issue the warrant. I made the application, I was in charge of the investigations. Independent judges of the ICC reviewed what we presented and they formed an independent determination that the standard of proof was met for the issuance of a warrant. But in terms of the immediate response, we see in so many situations when one closes one's eyes to the imperative of justice, there's a vicious cycle and things get worse. We've had jurisdiction, Adam, in terms of Sudan because of a Security Council referral. We've had investigations there since 2005. Warrants have been outstanding. And what we see now with the suffering, the allegations that are coming out from Darfur, from Khartoum, the pictures we've seen on our television screens of allegations of schools and hospitals being bombed and repositories of medicines being plundered, is a cycle of violence. And the question is, if there had been more justice, if the international community had helped support the rule of law, would that have been prevented? Because instead we've had almost 20 years of suffering for the people of Sudan instead of pulling out a rotten tooth and subjecting it to forensic analysis. I think a short-term discomfort probably is necessary if there's going to be hope for reconciliation. And what I've seen in so many parts of the world, so many other communities, there's really no chance from victim communities to start a dialogue of reconciliation until they see that their suffering, their pain, has been acknowledged by way of an accountability process. It sounds like your view is that peace in the long term isn't served by ignoring accountability and that the justice, in fact, can buttress peace. Just to think about the situation in Ukraine at the moment where the focus very much is on the, the battlefield rather than the, the, the negotiating table. But there may be a time that that changes. And do you think that any potential future negotiations with President Putin on a resolution of the war are impacted by the arrest warrant that's been issued against him? The arrest warrant issued by the judges is a fact 
it is there. What the effect of that, time will tell. But the great thing about uh, the Rome Statute is, firstly, we do our job. We're part of the international firmament. We have to ensure that there is not impunity because we've seen, since the Second World War, appeasement. And then impunity gives rise to instability, insecurity, and this black hole of chaos. But the other aspect is, you know, even the Rome Statute does provide that in certain circumstances, the Security Council of the United Nations may invoke Article 16 and order us to defer investigations or trials, if to do so would be to promote international peace and security. So it's been a very well-considered discussion that led to the Rome Statute, and here we are, the 25th year of the Rome Statute. It's never been used, mm. but it's available, and it requires discussions by those that are charged with maintaining international peace and security, namely the Security Council, to get to a position where the bullets stop flying and the bombs stop landing and civilians stop being targeted in the way that we allege, and then that will allow uh, space for other diplomatic and political options, but justice has to be part of it. And the form that justice can take, again, that can be uh, quite imaginative, and that's what history shows from you know, the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission to the Special Jurisdiction for Peace in Colombia. There's a variety of models. You don't get peace and security by ignoring wrongdoing. It has to be confronted. You refer to the Rome Statute, which gave birth to the ICC and the provision for the Security Council to be able to request a, a deferral of a case. There are many steps that would need to take place between now and then for that scenario, I think, to evolve in, in the case of Ukraine and, and President Putin specifically. But I would imagine that if that scenario did materialise, that you might feel personally pained a little bit to, to see something like that, where justice is, is held a little bit subject to political considerations because you, have, you are so very clear that your mandate is, is to really pursue that as, as vigorously as possible. I think one can't be self-indulgent to superimpose one's own political, legal and normative values on a statute. One has to show fidelity to the statute and apply it and realise that you're operating an international landscape in which there are other institutions and don't have the ego or the arrogance to think that you're the only voice at the table, but the important thing is not what I think, it's victims mm. and it's survivors and it's population because for there to be a peace agreement, it requires people to come together and for them to live with a settlement. That's for the future, my concern is today. And I think that's the obligation on all of us to realize that as we're speaking, not only in Ukraine, but in, look at the Rohingya, where I was when the Ukraine situation really started, people are in terror. People are living with insecurity. They don't know where their loved ones are. They're suffering from rapes. They have physical scars. Very often, they're treated as second-class citizens in different parts of the world, in refugee camps. And we have to realize that their lives matter. Whatever the color of their skin, their religion, their ethnicity, or their orientation, we need to do a better job as international community to give life to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's the 75th anniversary this year. And yet we've seen, despite the promise of never again from Nuremberg, lie after lie being given to that promise in Cambodia and Yugoslavia and Rwanda and, in fact, in conflicts right at the moment. I just came back from the DRC. There was a group of young girls, in fact, not women, 11 or 12, and they were holding babies, their children. I mean, their mothers holding babies, and the mothers have not even had a childhood. Mm -hmm. And this is the result of conflict. And we have to feel a sense of outrage, a sense of urgency, and that can be done whilst being completely objective. But we can't think here in the comfort of you know, the luxury, the safety, the serenity of Norway, that we're divorced from them because there's a chain reaction underway around the globe 
that what happens in the DRC or in uh, for the Rohingya or in uh, Ukraine or in Libya or in Sudan affects the international community. And unless we realize that we can be a catalyst for good or we can simply watch an explosion in slow motion take place, we're not going to make things better. And I think that's our fundamental responsibility. Otherwise, we have this complacent attitude that these problems will be solved by our children when actually there may not be a future for children at all. Again, I'm struck by the passion that you have for helping those survivors of those conflicts and, and those mothers in the DRC that you mentioned who you were just with. What do you say to them when they share the suffering that they've experienced and how do you deal with that? Well, uh, you know what I saw in, in fact, everywhere around the world, and I've said it repeatedly, you know, the heroes are the victims and survivors. It's not a cliche. You know, when I went to the Pansy Clinic in Bukovu, I was met by people smiling and waving and singing. When I went to Darfur, to Kalma Camp, people were singing. They, they met me at the road and they took me on the broken road to the middle of nowhere where they have been living since 2004, 2005. And they're singing, welcome, welcome, Mr. Khan, welcome, welcome, ICC. And not only do I feel humbled, I feel ashamed because I don't deserve that gratitude. And I said that to the Security Council. I gave the first briefing ever given by a prosecutor from Darfur. I did the same thing from Tripoli. Uh, I gave it from Khartoum. And I told the Security Council this story, and I said, I don't deserve that gratitude. And my office does not deserve that gratitude, and you don't deserve that gratitude. Because these people have been waiting for justice. They're living in parlous conditions. You see children that are wearing you know, football shirts of uh, Balotelli and people that are 20 years old, and you wonder how many children have been wearing those shirts that are hand-me-downs with holes. And it's not politics. It's not big power games. These are people who don't give a jot about the different epicenters of power in the world. They just want to live with peace and actually have a chance by dint of their hard work to make a future for themselves, to carve out a future of hope and move away from their reality of despair. And I do feel that's something that we should take very close to heart, that they have this sense of optimism and a sense of justice, you know, which is hope over experience. And I think we have to find a way to serve them better. I'm sure when you're confronted with talking with survivors that you would wish that justice could be served everywhere and that you're able to help them and, and to provide a message of reassurance to them. But it, you do have a, a difficult balancing act with limited resources. So let's talk about your vision for the breadth of what the court can achieve. You know, of the many conflicts that cry out for justice, how do you prioritize? Well, it's difficult. It's a variety of factors, and it's one of the criticisms that's being raised now of the Global South, the selectivity of international law. And the way I deal with it, Adam, is to accept it. I mean, one can't deny it. I don't mean accept it in the sense of it's, uh, it's a fact of life. But we're at a stage when international justice, objectively, still this slender sapling. It is not yet a mighty oak tree capable of extending its shade mm -hmm. to all of humanity. And I think probably one of my imperatives by the time I leave, I think we've got to find a way to deal with integrity, with principle, with what I've got you know, on my plate. But a model that will prove the concept is a narrower number of situations and to go deeper. Exactly. So I, I want to ask about that because I understand you've closed some preliminary investigations and, and not issued quite as many statements on ongoing conflicts compared to your predecessors. 
Is that a deliberate strategy on your part to focus on fewer places but serve justice more effectively in those places? You're quite right. I have not issued preventative statements to the extent of my predecessor and it's a function of my view that I'm not an activist and I'm not the only show in town. We have very good special rapporteurs in Geneva. We have a High Commissioner for Human Rights. Which national prosecutor, which director of public prosecutions uh, in the United Kingdom or the United States or in France are giving all the time preventative statements. You don't do that. You have the law and you apply the law and we should talk less and deliver more. So I take the view that uh, both is a function of just being a prosecutor and an officer of the court. Secondly, it can show the impotence of international law. If you know, With every conflict around the world, almost every week I'll have to be issuing preventative statements. But I'd rather try to act and show the results because I think that's the best way of fortifying the ICC and the effectiveness of my office. Let's talk about... Afghanistan, and this links with our conversation around how you prioritise and ensuring the court's political independence. Six months into your tenure, you reportedly announced you would deprioritise an investigation of crimes committed by the US and its allies in Afghanistan and focus more on crimes committed by the Taliban and the Islamic State group's affiliate there. I imagine it's incredibly important to you that the ICC, in practice, pursues justice regardless of how large a state is, how important they are politically and that you're also perceived to do so. How do you ensure that's the case? Well, by realising that it's a job where you're criticised if you stay still, you're criticised if you move, and being indifferent to those two realities and trying to do your job. And, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding in terms of what I did in Afghanistan. Uh, I deprioritised. Now, there was a report by independent experts that uh, before I took office independent experts led by Judge Justice Richard Goldstone, the first chief prosecutor of the Yugoslav and Rwandan tribunal. Uh, and looking at the resources and looking at the um, activities of the court, they gave three options really for the prosecution to prioritize cases, to deprioritize cases and to hibernate cases. And incidentally, we've just touched upon Sudan, one of the difficulties. Sudan was a Security Council referral. And I've said, well, that should be the top table. That should be more resources, Libya and Sudan, because of the role of the Security Council, all things being equal, I should give more resources to Sudan and Libya and anything referred to the Council because they've made a determination that that situation represents a threat to international peace and security. And that's exactly what I've been doing. But despite that, Sudan had been hibernated by my predecessor for many years. Now, in terms of Afghanistan, I made a decision because of resources I simply said I will deprioritize the international element. And I did so because the information I'd received, it's not because I'm a puppet of the United States or I'm a scaredy cat and somehow I've got no spine and no principle. It's simply because looking at the allegations of the Islamic State Khorasan and beheading people, looking at the allegations against the Taliban in terms of denying half the population, all girls uh, and women, the right to education and the allegations of gender persecution, and the ongoing nature of those violations, I form the view, given the impact we should bring, that the ongoing nature of the violations militated in favor of prioritizing that and you know, the historic issues in terms of the allegations against uh, internationals, uh, third country nationals in Afghanistan, uh, that would be deprioritized, but it doesn't mean the situation is closed. We'll still collect information and we'll still try to move towards complementarity. And incidentally, you've seen the activity in Australia. Uh, I've, I've met the commission there that's uh, spawned by the Bradshaw Committee, and there are different initiatives underway to make sure there is justice. And 
there is a coherence, there is a method in what could be viewed as the madness, because there's a whole interplay of national authorities and based upon complementarity, I've said repeatedly, even before my election, I don't mind if it's the flag of the ICC, the flag of uh, you know, the African Union or a national flag behind the prosecutor or a judge. I'm very happy to provide information to national authorities to give expertise. I've said that I view myself and the ICC very much as a hub, not as an apex court. And I think this plays into the issue of complementarity and the fact that victims need to be seen and to realize they're not invisible, and it doesn't really matter what is the forum as long as there's an, a process of integrity that safeguards their fundamental rights and prohibits essential wrongdoing. I want to end with some reflections on your career, and in particular, I want to ask how your past informs your present. Before your current role, you were a defence attorney, on the other side of the table, as it were, representing political leaders who've been accused of some very serious crimes. You famously defended William Ruto, president of Kenya, Charles Taylor, former president of Liberia. How did that experience help you in your current role? Well, I'm lucky, and I don't want to be parochial about it, but I come from a system, the jurisdiction of England and Wales, in which it's quite normal for the bar. I mean, since I was a very junior lawyer, I prosecuted and I defended and, you know, also sit as a judge, as a recorder, and you can do all things, you know, almost in the same month, uh, you know, if, if things align. So objectivity means that you must be a servant of the law. Now, the role of a prosecutor is different from a defence counsel, but the deontology rules, the ethical considerations, must bind us together. And I think to be a good lawyer, you must have a degree of detachment, you must have objectivity, to make sure justice is done. A prosecutor must not strive officiously for a conviction. A defence counsel must act with integrity. So I think it's helpful because, you see, I have had the opportunity of representing victims around the world, defence accused, heads of state, heads of government, and prosecuting, and I think that enriches my horizon of understanding of where the weaknesses are, and so that you're not evangelist. Mm. You, you are restrained uh, and guided and informed by the rule of law because I think if we do that, that's how you build an institution and you create a, an, an ecosystem that will hopefully be stronger. And in that ecosystem, this slender sapling of justice can grow over the generations. And uh, maybe my successors will see the mighty oak tree that humanity mm. craves for. You deal every day with evidence of the most horrific crimes and the enormous challenge of bringing the people who commit those crimes to justice. You can't do that job without being incredibly resilient. And I'm sure when you speak to survivors of a conflict, you feel a deep sense of obligation to them. That much has been clear in our discussion today. Can you think of a moment when the responsibility on your shoulders felt particularly heavy, perhaps even overwhelming? What I'm always struck by, and I think that probably that's where one gets one's energy from and, and stamina from and resilience from, are people that have been violated in the most vile manners multiple rapes, people who've lost their children, women who have carried you know, the bodies of their uh, beheaded children on their back. And they have no reason to have faith in anything. And yet they will come and they will speak and they will still have this remarkable conviction that despite the bleakness of their experience, justice can bring in the light of dawn. If we look less at the big states, if we look less at the big powerful dynamics, if we look less at the 
sometimes the pettiness of institutions, the sharp elbows of this is my turf and this is your turf and this kind of proclivity to fiefdom building or empire building and look on those that we're here to serve and realize that in a blink of an eye, we're gone. We have a very temporary sojourn on this planet and what do we want to leave behind? It should be an effort, sincerely, when we meet our maker to say we've tried our best to serve with integrity and I think if we focus on that, that's a point of commonality because it's separate from the big power politics and I think that's a, a possibility for a future. And unless we have that attitude, I think we shouldn't take the future for granted. The price of liberty, as Virgil said, is, it, is eternal vigilance and it requires constant effort. Well, on that hopeful note, we must leave it. Kareem Khan, thank you so much for being my guest in the Mediator Studio. It's a great pleasure, Adam. Thank you so much. And there we end this edition of the Mediator Studio. To get more episodes as they come out, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We always love to hear from you. So if you have views on anything you've heard, please get in touch via the listener survey in the show notes on our website. Or do drop me a message on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. The Mediator Studio is an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our managing editor is Christina Buchold and the producer is Chris Gunnis. Research for this episode was done by Noemi Blomer. Big thanks also to Lee Buidong for her support. Hope you'll be with me for the next edition. Until then, from Oslo, this is Adam Cooper saying goodbye and thanks for listening.